Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. We are about four days away from Thanksgiving, and the main dish, the main entree that most of us are going to enjoy this coming Thursday is, of course, turkey. In fact, I was reading a stat this week that an estimated 46 million turkeys, 46 million turkeys will be consumed on Thanksgiving. I think we got that stat up here on the screen. And that number, of course, excludes any turkeys that the president will pardon. But cooking turkeys, as some of us have come to experience, isn't exactly an easy thing to do, amen? Um, cooking turkey can be pretty difficult and a lot of work, especially if you're a newbie in this area. That's why Butterball Turkey Company, you may not know this, so be grateful for what I'm about to share, Butterball Turkey Company has a consumer hotline set up to answer any questions about preparing your holiday bird. And this is actually true, and so if you wanna write this down, you can. You might need this number for Thursday, uh, 1-800-BUTTERBALL. Uh, in case you have any questions about preparing your turkey. And as you can imagine, every once in a while, they receive some pretty strange phone calls at this consumer hotline. Um, Paul Harvey, who's a radio commentator, he says that a number of years ago, this person called into the Butterball hotline, and she had a really odd question. This person was wondering if it was possible to cook a turkey that had been at the bottom of her freezer, get this, for 23 years. This turkey had been in her freezer for almost two and a half decades. And so the Butterball representative said, I got to think about this for a second. And then she said to the woman, well, it'll probably be okay to cook this turkey so long as the freezer was kept below zero the entire 23 years that the turkey was in there. But then she also said, I wouldn't recommend eating it because the flavor would have deteriorated so much that it just wouldn't be worth consuming. And that's when the person responded back with these words. She said, all right, if that's the case, I don't know what we'll do. We'll donate it to our church. <laughs> Listen, folks, I realize the title of my sermon today is Give All You Can, but believe it or not, we do have limits here. Actually, we have a tendency to give God the leftovers instead of the first fruits, don't we? And that is something I want to challenge all of us on this morning. Uh, today we are wrapping up, we are concluding our three-part sermon series that we have entitled Earn, Save, Give. We saw that really cool bumper video for the series just a few moments ago, Earn, Save, Give. And our goal in the sermon series has been to develop a Christian understanding of money. Uh, money tends to be a pretty touchy and controversial subject here in America, as we established a couple of weeks ago. But that should not be the case with those of us who follow Jesus Christ, because what we do with our money matters. What we do with our money has spiritual implications, eternal implications. Jesus puts it best in his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is from Matthew 6, verse 21. Let's read this together. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Wherever your treasure is, Jesus says, there the desires of your heart will also be. And so in getting our hearts properly aligned, what we've been doing um, in these messages is we've been drawing from a sermon preached by John Wesley. 
And if you're not familiar with John Wesley, um, he and his brother Charles, they were the chief founders of the Methodist movement back in the 1700s. Well, in 1760, when John Wesley was 57 years old, he preached a sermon, probably the most famous sermon on money that he ever preached. The title was The Use of Money. The Use of Money. And in that sermon, John Wesley put forward three rules for money that he thought every Christian should follow. He said, number one, we should earn all we can or gain all we can. Number two, we should save all we can. And then number three, we should give all we can. Earn all we can, save all we can, give all we can. Um, so far in the sermon series, we've talked about earning all we can. We've talked about saving all we can. And now we come to the last rule, giving all we can. And when I think of somebody in the Bible who really embodied this rule, who really lived this rule out, the person who comes to mind for me, it's not somebody that we might expect. In fact, some of us might be kind of shocked that this is the person I'm thinking about. Uh, he's one of the most eccentric characters, one of the quirkiest characters that Jesus ever encountered over the course of his ministry. And the person that I'm referring to is this little tax collector named Zacchaeus. You ever heard of Zacchaeus before? Uh, and so his story is actually only found in one of the Gospels. Anybody know in which Gospel we find the story of Zacchaeus? It's in Luke's Gospel. Not in Matthew, not in Mark, not in John. You can check this if you want to. It is only found in the Gospel of Luke. And so listen with me carefully to what Luke the historian, uh, Luke was a bit of a historian, um, listen to what he writes here. Uh, this is Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read this text, and then we're going to walk through it together. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, the region of Jericho, that would be. And he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times. Somebody say four times. Four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man, and when Jesus says son of man, he's talking about himself, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. If they ever make a movie on Zacchaeus, I really want Danny DeVito to play the part. <laughs> Don't you agree? Wouldn't Danny DeVito be a really amazing Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus might not have been the biggest guy around, but make no mistake about it, he had by far the biggest bank account around. And the reason for that was his job. What was his job? tax collector. Now, I realize that these days in the 21st century, hardly anybody likes tax collectors. Amen? <laughs> I can't imagine a lot of us like at that time of the year when we're paying our taxes. But that was especially the case 2,000 years ago in the ancient world. Uh, you see, what would happen is, or what had happened, is Rome had come in 2,000 years ago and occupied the land where God's people were living. 
This was the very land that God had promised their ancestors, going all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what Rome would do 2,000 years ago is Rome would farm out, they would farm out the duties of the tax collector to the highest bidder in every community. So that basically means that Zacchaeus was already rich to begin with. He must have already had a pretty uh, substantial amount of money because he bought the right to collect taxes from his own people, the Jewish people. And that was seen as incredibly offensive 2,000 years ago. Number one, Rome was the enemy, right? Rome had come in um, uninvited, unannounced, just taking away the land that God's people were living in, treating the Israelites as second-class citizens, imposing their government, their value system, their way of life upon the people. And also, number two, tax collectors would take money from their own people, the Jews, and give it to Rome. But not only that, they would take more money from people than what they actually owed. And what would they do with the difference? They would keep it. They would pocket it. In a sense, and I have this up here on the screen, tax collectors back then were the opposite of Robin Hood. What would Robin Hood do? He would steal from the rich and give to the? Tax collectors would take from people who were already poor, people who were already struggling to feed their families, to get by, to make ends meet. Small children would go to bed hungry with empty stomachs because of people like tax collectors. No wonder they were despised so much. And get this, Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. You know what he was? He was the chief tax collector. Nowhere else in the Gospels are those words chief tax collector ever used. They're only ever used in reference to Zacchaeus. This is Luke's way of telling us this guy, Zacchaeus, loved money. He loved money. He loved money so much that he didn't care if he lost his friends, his neighbors, his whole community, kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge, and his quest to get rich. Until one day, we're told in Luke 19, Jesus is passing through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. Now, this is Luke 19. Luke is only 24 chapters long, so we're coming to the very end of the gospel. Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? What's going to happen there? He's going to be crucified. He's going to give himself on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That's not what the people thought. The people thought that the whole reason Jesus, this messianic figure, this kingly figure, the whole reason he's going to Jerusalem is he's going to overthrow Rome in the capital city. He's going to toss Rome out. He's going to restore Israel back to the time of King David. Remember King David a thousand years earlier? Uh, he was the king when God was leading God's people in a mighty way. And so there's all this excitement. There's all this anticipation in the air as Jesus, this, this figure is coming through. So what does Zacchaeus do? He climbs up the sycamore fig tree. Now, obviously, one of the reasons he climbed the sycamore fig tree is that he was short. He was vertically challenged, we might say. And he wanted to get a good look at Jesus. But I can't help but wonder if there are other reasons too. Think about this. Zacchaeus had betrayed most of the people in that community, if not all of them. And so if you were in Zacchaeus' position, would you have really wanted to be in that crowd with all those people? Hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people, especially when a revolutionary figure like Jesus and the people are assuming he's going to toss out Rome uh, and Zacchaeus works for Rome, this revolutionary figure like Jesus, he's passing through. I think Zacchaeus was afraid for his life. 
I also think that Zacchaeus was ashamed and embarrassed with the kind of person that he was. His reputation. What had become of his life? Because that's what we do when we're ashamed and embarrassed. We hide away. If you've ever seen a sycamore fig tree uh, in a picture, you'll know there's lots of leaves and branches. It's a pretty good tree to hide in. But then Jesus. Just imagine the story unfolding. Jesus, full of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and just unconditional acceptance. What does he do? He calls Zacchaeus by name. He doesn't say, hey, tax collector. Hey, guy who everybody hates. Hey, guy who doesn't have any friends. He calls him by name. He gives Zacchaeus the remarkable ability to recognize who he truly is as a child of God and a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus knows no other way to respond to this gift, this remarkable gift that Jesus gives him, other than with gratitude and generosity. Zacchaeus comes down from the tree, and what does he say? I'm going to take half my wealth and give it to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody on their taxes, and let's be clear, Zacchaeus had cheated everybody on their taxes. If I have cheated anybody on their taxes, I will pay back not one, not two, not three. How much? Four times the amount. Zacchaeus likely went from being the richest guy in Jericho to the poorest guy in Jericho. That bankrupted him in just a matter of moments. And to what does Jesus attribute the sudden outburst of generosity? To salvation. What does Jesus say at the very end of the story? Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Let's be clear. Zacchaeus wasn't saved because he was generous. He was generous because he was saved. His generosity was a sign of the work that God was doing in his life to restore him, to conform him back to the image of God. And yet so often, we resist this same kind of work of God in our own lives. Uh, Martin Luther you might remember Martin Luther. He played a key role in the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s. He was the guy who nailed the 95 theses uh, on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, back in uh, 1517. Well, Martin Luther once made this observation. He said there are three conversions necessary in the life of every Christian. There's conversion of the mind, there's conversion of the heart, and then there's conversion of the purse or the wallet. And the fact that Martin Luther put wallet last on the list tells us that he realized how much we push back at this kind of conversion. We're okay with saying that we're Christians. We're okay with saying that we're Christ followers. We're okay with saying that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, but Jesus is the Lord of my finances? I don't know about that. We're okay with joining the church. We're okay with attending services. We're okay with serving, volunteering, helping out, but tithing? Financially giving? I mean, come on. Does the church really need my money? And yet, even as we raise a question like that, does the church really need my money? We are showing the state of our hearts. We are revealing how far we have to go in our journey with Jesus in this world. And we're also forgetting something really important. That if people didn't give to Asbury United Methodist Church, people like you and people like me, if people didn't give to Asbury United Methodist Church, we would have to close our doors we would have to stop doing ministry. 
we would have to put an abrupt end to all of our children's programs. We saw these young kids uh, here in the service dancing around. We would have to put an end to all that. All of our youth programs, all of our outreach in the community, all of our community partnerships like with the Sharing Center and with Family Promise, all these events that we hold like, like the Fall Festival or anything that we do with Back to School, all that would have to be stopped. We would have to end all of our worship services that give people a chance to have an encounter with the risen Jesus. I say this simply to be realistic. Asbury isn't a business. We're a not-for-profit organization that operates on contributions, on the contributions of those who call this place their church home, who are committed and invested to the ministry that God is doing here. So my question for us this morning on this Commitment Sunday are you committed and invested in the ministry that God is doing here at Asbury United Methodist Church? Are you proud of what's transpired over the past few decades since 1959 when God called this congregation into being? And are you looking forward to what's to come in the future? Do you believe that Asbury's best days are ahead of us or behind us? Zacchaeus gave all he could in Jericho that day. But most of us, if not all of us, uh, don't start out in the same place that Zacchaeus did. In fact, usually for us, um, giving is something that we grow into over time. Um, Jen Harnish, who's a retired United Methodist pastor, he actually lives in Longwood, uh, just up the road. Uh, in one of his books, um, he writes that there are three stages that Christians usually fall into when it comes to giving. So what I want to do is I'm going to offer these stages to you, and I want you to ask yourself this question. Which one of these three stages do I currently fall into? The first stage that Jim Harnish talks about are the tossers. These are the people whose giving is really consistent. Usually it's random, it's unplanned. They open up their wallet that day when they're in service. They say, okay, what do I have inside? I've got a $5 bill, I've got a $10 bill, a $20 bill. I'm going to take that bill and I'm just going to toss it into the offering plate. There's not a whole lot of thought that goes into it. They might give one week. They might not give another week. Um, usually they give whenever they have some extra cash on hands. So there are the tossers. And then number two, there are the triers. The triers. Uh, these are the people who aren't currently giving as much as they want to give, but they're working toward a goal. And usually that goal is 10%. And I'll say more about that in a moment. Um, unlike the tossers, their giving is regular. It's consistent. They might give weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, quarterly, something like that. And they might say, you know what? I'm not in a position right now where I can give 10%, but you know what I can do? I can give 2%. I can give 3%. I can give 4%. I can give 5%. And the next year, I'm going to up what I give. I'll give a percentage more and then a percentage more and then a percentage more after that. Usually, this is the category in which most church folks find themselves. And by the way, if you find yourself in this category today, I really would encourage you, as you're thinking about what your commitment card will look like, that if you gave one amount this year, that you would consider giving a different amount this next year, right? Even, and especially if your income has grown, but even if your income has stayed the same. So there are the tossers, there are the triers, and then finally, number three, there are the tithers. And these are the folks who follow the Old Testament prescription 
And by the way, this is not just an Old Testament thing because Jesus actually affirmed this. In Luke chapter 11, in Matthew chapter 23, I checked this about 45 minutes ago as I was getting ready for worship. He confirmed this in Luke 11 and Matthew 23. But this is giving 10% of your annual income over to God. And I say this next part for no other reason other than to be transparent with you. Because I think that you deserve transparency from your clergy. This is something that Amanda and I practice by the grace of God. Because we believe in it so fervently. And let me also share this. That ever since we have done this, we have found that we always have enough. Even in tough seasons, difficult seasons, like when only one of us was working, somehow it all worked out. God supplied for our needs and then some. God gave us far more than what we could desire. Somehow in God's economy, there's always enough. I also want to be clear that whatever stage we find ourselves in, if we are a tosser, if we are a trier, if we are a tither, that every little bit counts. Do you realize, for example, that of 100 people in this church committed to giving $20 more a week than what they're currently giving, that of 100 people did that, $20 more a week, that that would generate $104,000 of new income for Asbury. Imagine how God might take $104,000 and help us to accomplish our ministry here, our mission of knowing the love of Jesus Christ and passing that love on to others. That's why God is calling us to be all in this morning, not just all in in terms of our attendance, not just all in in terms of our service, our volunteering, but all in in terms of our finances. It's holistic discipleship is. I refer again to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And I want to end by saying, never presume for a moment that any of us are beyond the reach of God in this area. We're not. I have seen God stretch and expand human hearts when it comes to giving. Even hearts I never would have imagined. I want to share something very personal with you. This is the first Bible I ever received. It's kind of falling apart. I keep this Bible in my office. It's a reminder to me of the grace of God very early in my life, how that grace unfolded. But whenever I look at this Bible, I always remember a story that's associated with it. It was 1994. I was seven years old. And my mom had gotten the sense that something was missing in our family's life. So she came up to my dad and she said, hey, Doug, I would really like to take the kids to church this coming Sunday. We weren't going to church on a regular basis at that point. And she said, I really would appreciate it if you would drive us. Uh, my mom didn't drive. And so when it came to far distances, she was really dependent on my dad. And much to her surprise, my dad said, well, can I come too? She said, of course. So my dad would join us on most Sunday mornings, but not every Sunday morning. My dad was kind of on edge when he came to church. He wasn't really sure how he felt about the church. Well, one Sunday morning, 
uh, my mom came up to me as we were getting ready for church, and uh, she had been so impressed with the hospitality that we had received from the church, uh, the fact that the church had given us kids Bibles. Uh, she was just so blown away how the church had taken us in. We felt like we were part of the community. So she gave me a $10 bill that morning, and she gave my brother a $10 bill, and she gave my sister a $10 bill, and she said, I want you to take this $10 bill, and I want you to put it in the offering plate when you're in Sunday school today because they had an offering plate in the Sunday school classroom. I was seven years old. I had $10 in my hand. I felt like I was Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or somebody really rich like that. I had never held that much money before in my life. And so in my naivety, in my excitement, I went up to my dad who wasn't planning on going to church that morning uh, he was wearing jeans. He had just woken up. His hair was all over the place. He was eating a tuna fish sandwich for breakfast. I still remember this with perfect clarity. And I said, look, look, I've got $10. And not only do I have $10, Ryan has $10. Melissa has $10. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to take this $10 bill and all of us together, we're going to put it in the collection plate at Sunday school. And that's going to help the church out. Isn't that awesome? My dad didn't agree. So I'm going to paraphrase what he said. <laughs> he said, Judy, Judy, what's going on? These kids aren't going to take 30, fill in the blank, dollars and give it to any church. Now, looking back on that situation as an adult, it's really hard for me to be critical of my dad because um, my parents had actually filed for bankruptcy when I was three, just a few years before that. Uh, they had gotten a smaller house, smaller car. $30 is a lot to part with when you're trying to raise three kids. So what happened next is my dad took the $10 bill from me. He took the $10 bill from my brother, from my sister, and that was the end of it. but that wasn't the end of it because God always gets the last word. Over the years, as I grew up and my dad became more and more a part of, a church, a part of the church, I saw God through the Holy Spirit do amazing things in my dad's life as my dad let go of his resources and began to share them. I remember my dad sitting beside my mom at the 11 o'clock service each Sunday as my mom would pull out her checkbook and she would write a check to the church and put it in the offering plate. I also remember something that happened about six years ago. It's the fall of 2015. Uh, this was just a few months after my mom passed away from cancer. I went to the mailbox one day. Some of you might remember I shared a story about going to the mailbox uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, this is another story about going to the mailbox. Went to the mailbox. There was an envelope from my dad and I just opened it up there on the spot. Inside the envelope, there was some information from the church where I had grown up, including a list of the people who had turned in their 2016, this was in 2015, their 2016 pledge card or commitment card. We got that up here on the screen. It says, thank you everyone who has turned in their pledge card so far, investing in God's work through Christ Church. Christ Church was the church where I grew up. You could join them by filling out the card in your bulletin and placing it in the offering. You see that name there that's circled? 
Douglas John Jones. My dad's not the most expressive guy in the world. He's not one to open up and share what he's feeling inside. But I know my dad well enough to know that by sending this to me, he didn't have to send this, but by sending this to me, that was his way of saying, listen, I know your mom has passed away. There's nobody to hold me accountable to this. But I love this church. I know what this church did for our family. I know what it meant to your mother. And I know what it means to me. I want to be invested in what God is doing here. I look forward to what's to come. And as I held that information to my hands that day at the mailbox, I couldn't help but think of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Forever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. God changed my dad's heart. God changed Zacchaeus' heart. God can change any human heart. God can change your heart. God can change my heart. It's in my prayer for all of us this morning as we prepare to drop off our 2022 commitment card, is that having earned all we can and saved all we can, we would indeed give all we can, that we would let go of our resources, we would trust God, put our faith in God, and partner with God as God seeks to transform this world, this world that God so deeply loves, through the ministry of local churches, like Asbury United Methodist Church. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.